Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Heltz. Today, on a very special episode of Hanging Out with the Dream King, we talk about how maybe you shouldn't smoke that back. No, wait, that's something different. <laughs> this episode, we are wrapping up Preludes and Nocturnes. It's the first Sandman story arc. We'll talk about what we think about the character so far, what kind of story uh, we are expecting in the future if we uh, went back in time and pretended like we didn't know where things were going to go, and uh, what is this thing that we've been talking about after all anyways, and who is Sandman? Yeah, this is, this is a very special episode. This is going to be a lot of fun. I've been looking forward to talking about these these first eight issues, this first story arc, all together uh, for a, a, a while now, though. And we are we are going to talk about themes, uh, but I'm sadly not so much, I don't think, morals and messages and uh, an anti-smoking campaign, though maybe there is some of that in here. Uh, maybe, Brent, you're going to surprise me and say that you think that's one of the one of the hidden themes here. But before we get into themes and, and motifs and so on, let's just talk about Dream. Let's talk about Dream's character arc. That might be a bit simple here in this very first volume, but as we accrue volumes of Sandman over the next few years, it's going to be more and more complicated. Uh, but Brent, what's your sense of of what happens to Dream in this story? Who is he when he starts and, and who is he? What's going on with him at the end of this story arc? What's the journey he goes on? Yeah, and he starts as, you know, an enigma. He's just a man in a imprisoned in a orb in a sphere he has no ability to really influence anything for the first issue when we're encountering him um and he's trapped and so we feel bad for him but also he's mysterious we don't know what quite to think of him um uh we can tell we really don't like um burgess so the more vile the captor is, the even more sympathetic and empathetic we feel towards the character of Dream. But then when he's released, we see him react as I think any of us would if we had that kind of power, where he becomes a little vengeful and seeks a little vengeance. And then we're, I don't know, in some ways a little scared at, at kind of what he ends up doing to pay back his captors. I don't know what your thoughts were kind of at, at what we thought about Dream at that point, Glenn. Well, I think this is one of the really fascinating things about this character and really just about the Sandman as a story is that Dream, he's the title character. He is the Sandman. It, he doesn't really feel like a protagonist, certainly not at, at this point. We almost know less about him than we know about a variety of side characters, including the Burgesses and, and uh, John Constantine and other characters who are in and out of this story. And that's a really strange storytelling choice for, uh, for, for Gaiman here that Gaiman made. But I think it also is a really profitable choice. And as we continue on, as we get, get further into the story, we're going to see that time and again, where so many of the stories that Gaiman wants to tell are really only Dream is really only an ancillary character there, but but here in especially in that very first issue, but through the whole arc, Dream is doing stuff. Right, we are getting this story of him escaping his imprisonment, taking vengeance on people, and then also getting his tools back so that he can reclaim and rebuild his his kingdom. And yeah, along the way, it's just not clear if we actually like him. And I think there are maybe two big themes that Gaiman is exploring here, and maybe we can just transition into talking about those themes here. And the one you, you pointed out already, Brent, which is is vengeance, right? This maybe uh, spectrum of of vengeance and mercy. And something we made a pretty big deal uh, about was the, the different ways that Dream treated Alex Burgess 
and John D, right? He had mercy on John D at the end, but he takes vengeance on Alex Burgess right at the beginning. And so I think that maybe that might be a way of seeing Dream's character arc that he, as he's telling his sister at the end, that maybe he feels maybe kind of shiftless, kind of pointless, kind of meaningless, and that maybe he didn't actually get satisfaction from vengeance the way that he thought he was going to during his imprisonment. And an interesting way he maybe has more time to consider and think about his actions actually when he is acting than when he is locked and maybe more operating on instinct when he unleashes the vengeance um, against uh, Alec Burgess, you know, at the front of this story arc. It's interesting to me, too, even in that first issue where Dream spend mu- spends much of it imprisoned um, for 72 years, kept away from everything, including air. He is not the biggest victim. The biggest victim is the terrible things happening to people in the real world. And particularly, you know, we briefly discussed the few panels that are given to some of the characters. None, I think, it's worse treatment than Unity Kincaid. Um, and what she suffers partially as a result of the sleepy sickness that affects her, we're led to believe because of the imprisonment. So it's not Dream's fault, but it's she is kind of the bigger victim than he is, um, as are some of the other characters, you know, that we talk about in the first issue. And then later, even, I mean, even in the episode where Dream tries to reclaim his ruby and then it, 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 it shocks him and he falls over, like, but we just saw, I think at that point, the nurse get killed after giving John D a ride. So like he's, he's never the biggest victim. So he's both not the protagonist and also not the person who is suffering the most in any of these comics. Yeah, that's a really great point. A really fantastic observation because right, he is the embodiment, the, the anthropomorph, the anthropomorphization of a function in the universe. And without that function being fulfilled, everyone else is, is suffering for it. And, you know, another theme that runs throughout this arc is imprisonment. I mean, it's most obvious, I guess, right, when we're talking about Dream being in prison for 70 years. And of course, he's mad as hell about it. And that's where the vengeance comes from. But we're seeing that as a result of that, everyone else suffers. And that's a real interesting, uh, you know, approach to dealing with the theme of imprisonment is seeing that it's not just about the prisoner, but that people adjacent to it in some ways are going to be are going to be negatively affected. And of course, Dream's not the only person who we see in prison, right? We, we visit hell, where all the souls are in prison, but we especially see this person, this woman, Nada, who's in prison there. Rachel, uh, John Constantine's ex-girlfriend, Rachel, is in some way imprisoned by her addiction to the dream sand, right? She's trapped, and and even her father's living body is imprisoned in this sort of unending torment in his house. John D and and others, right, are explicitly imprisoned in Arkham Asylum. And, and when we covered that, we asked whether Arkham had just as much of a destructive effect on D as the Ruby itself did. We also see, right, all the people in the diner in 24 hours become prisoners of D, who in some ways is maybe just visiting on others what's been visited on to him. And that seems to be a real a real point that Gaiman is making or, or something that Gaiman is exploring anyway. Like, how do people behave when they feel trapped? How do people behave when they feel that they've been, you know, unjustly in prison? So oftentimes, you know, in literature, there are the basic themes about man versus man, man versus nature, man versus God. And in this case, we almost have particularly the first 
issue is very much man versus God in which dream is the God and the man, the protagonist, the people moving the action forward are the Burgess family who were not rooting for it all, but they are the ones who are driving forth the plot for all intents and purposes um, are these villains who are kind of in some ways the central actors in that whole first uh, issue. And because of the ramifications of what they've done to dream and taking his items and then their untrustworthy colleagues running off with them. Like that is what leads all of these, all of the plot that kind of follows until the last issue. And even the need for death's kind of intervention with her brother um, is all driven by man trying to like fight God essentially and control. I mean, hoping to capture death, but ending up instead capturing dream. And, and so it's interesting kind of flipping it where it's, um, deciding to focus on like, okay, well, but let's have not man like banging their head against the wall that doesn't move, but rather like actually what happens if a God type thing is captured and what are the, be the ramifications of that? In some interviews, uh, I'm thinking in particular, I was, uh, recently revisiting the Sandman Companion by High Bender has a collection of interviews and um, observations the author makes, but interviews uh, with Neil Gaiman. And Neil Gaiman had made a remark about how, you know, this was the time in which, uh, in DC Comics continuity, Superman had been slightly depowered because of the challenge of Superman having ever-increasing powers. There just wasn't a story you can tell about a character who can deal with any problem, um, except for he has vulnerabilities to magic, which most of us do. Um, I believe I have vulnerabilities to magic. Glenn, you don't have vulnerabilities to magic, but only <laughs> yeah, because of that cat that. that one time. We, yeah, we shouldn't tell people about that or where that picture is in that attic. But Neil Gaiman said that explicitly he wanted, was wondering what it'd be like to write about someone or, a, you know, personification in this case, who is effectively all powerful. And what happens when that person, though, like is put in a position where they are the ones who have to try to make up lost ground, which I think is an interesting in the comics kind of continuity sense, uh, an interesting way to look at the dream character. But again, it's to me, it's some of this is like flipping the man versus God thing you normally would see on its head because it's not just, you know, a person uselessly yelling at the clouds. It's someone yelled at the clouds with the right rhyming pattern to capture the cloud god in a way. It's a really interesting question, the extent to which this is man versus God or man versus a, a really powerful person, right? I mean, for us to to have this story, you know, dream though he may be an abstraction, a, a concept, or a function in the universe, we are still seeing him as a person, and and that is also then how people are interacting with him as well. So that's a really interesting idea to to be thinking about it that way. And and of course, you know, one of the things that Gaiman does, and I think does so brilliantly, especially here in this first collection, is to show us the way that that one that one conflict that one decision to try to capture death but actually capturing dream spiral spirals out into all of these other stories in, including uh, a very serious man versus man story that we don't get the entirety of narrated for us though it would be amazing to get that story and maybe people have or would like to write some fan fiction about it and that's this this magical war that happens after uh, Sykes and and Ethel leave with dreams ruby and burgess is trying and trying and trying to to track them again right and and we don't actually see him make any particular 
effort to get the stuff back. It actually seems that all he's trying to do is kill them. He's just trying to get vengeance because they've betrayed him. But there's a whole story there that I would like to see more fleshed out. But yeah, we're seeing how how that one action creates the ripples that are all these man versus man conflicts or person versus person conflicts. And I think it's an interesting the idea of Sandman as 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 man as creature. I mean, we see throughout the comic that he sometimes appears to different people in different ways based on their personal kind of religious background or views, whether he has, you know, slightly different features, but still appears to be human or when he encounters Martian Manhunter, that he appears to be this terrible fire sleep God in Martian mythology. So it's interesting to me that the decision that the reader has a default because we also see because of the way third person, you know, views and comics work, we actually get a depiction on the page of what he looks like when we're the only ones who are viewing him or no one is viewing him in continuity without breaking the fourth wall. So his default view being something that is projected as something that the, the typical, you know, mainly Western audience might view him as in the late 1980s, you know, cultural milieu, I think is, is interesting um, to think about the personification of dream. Well, in a lot of ways, he really is a, a Greek, an ancient Greek god in the sense that, yes, he represents a particular concept, but he is also just a person. He's just a kind of larger than life person. And that, you know, maybe even his his emotions are perhaps even bigger, you know, than than a, what a human being has. And perhaps that might be part of where this, uh, this dr- single-minded drive towards vengeance comes from is that he's got these sort of larger than life emotions, right? Because this is something I think that so often strikes us when we go to read the Iliad or the Odyssey for the first time and realize that these these gods are actually uh, some of the worst people we've ever met. That they're in, they're they're like insanely petty and <laughs> and it's just a, a soap opera except with people who can you know throw lightning bolts and uh, make earthquakes and and so on. Dream seems to be very much of that mold. No, I think that that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that as much before. Also, in terms of not only he can show all the pettiness of a Greek god at times, but also the kind of lust for mortals that Greek gods oftentimes had, uh, in Zeus's case, constantly, but in other cases, just occasionally. Because it's interesting that the only romantic relationship we're aware at this point that Dream has had in his past is with the seemingly human woman who has been uh, locked up in hell. And so the idea of him being both kind of this more powerful idea personification, but yet also occasionally having kind of relationships that don't end in a normal way, but perhaps otherwise play out in a relatively normal way that we might think about between uh, two people. Yeah, not as a really interesting character in this story is we're we're told that she's been there for for 10,000 years. And this is another instance in which dream, he talks about his emotions here. She asks, don't you still love me? And he says, yes, of course, I still love you. I just haven't forgiven you yet. Right. And so there's a real sense of there's like the intensity, but also the extensity of his emotions, right? That 10,000 years is not enough time for him to come around to forgiving her for whatever the transgression is, you know, cheating on him or something like that. That's one of the big cases where, 
we clearly don't I, it's I think it's very difficult for any of us to conceptualize what would at all justify him doing this to this woman even if he hadn't had a prior relationship with her just like what horrible thing could she have really done that it was worth this and yet we have to then still feel like we want to root for dream for the rest of at least the rest of the issue um if not the rest of the arc and I think only because he's surrounded by all of these other terrible things in hell and because they are managed to quickly move through the nada drop in one page, are we able to kind of return to that? I mean, he's a, he's a tough person to like. So, I mean, let me ask you that question then, Glenn, at this point, like, do you like dream based on this i mean can you is is that even like a yes no question well i think the final issue here issue eight the sound of her wings is so important here because i I don't like him up to that point i mean he certainly looks cool it's a great story i love the story and he's interesting but he's not a guy i'd like to go have a beer with and i don't think that he's making morally correct morally good decisions i don't think he's a good person but at the end, right, we see him wrestling with that, coming to terms with that, or, or at least acknowledging that, uh, that, that the vengeance that he took on Alex Burgess didn't make him feel good. And, and I guess maybe we should say really even at the end of fighting D, he doesn't take vengeance on him. So it starts there where he decides that, yeah, actually the right thing to do here is to return John D to the place where he's getting treatment, though actually he's not maybe really getting all that much treatment there. Uh, but then he has this, this, he, you know, tag along this uh, uh, go to go to work with your sister day and seems to be being humanized in that moment. And, and you know, at this point, we don't know that much about dreams. So we don't know if it's that he's being humanized for the first time in all eternity or if something this is all the lingering effects of his imprisonment, that he lost his humanity while he was being imprisoned in the dungeon in the, the Burgess mansion and is now needing to get that back but i am at this point though i have not liked dream so far am excited to see if i'm going to like him you know in the next next volume and i don't remember so that'll be a lot of fun too yeah no i think it will be a lot of fun and issue eight i think is a very important issue to be in this volume because it's after you know effectively the story arc that is one through seven it very much resets the tone it is, despite the fact that we are constantly dealing with deck death, and there are some kind of very, there's some dark, but more so sad, I would say, uh, moments to it. Um, uh, particularly, I remember when the, when the mother returns after, you know, the baby has passed away and, and left with, with death. That's a particularly heartbreaking panel. But the tone of that issue as a whole is, is very kind of uplifting. Um, which is not where we're left at all by the ends of six or seven, even though Dream has triumphed and collected his, his, his helm and his ruby, or his ruby's been destroyed, but he's got regotten the power and his pouch of sand is back and John D is back in Arkham for better or worse, but everyone in Arkham is sleeping soundly. So that's kind of an up note, but just not much of one compared to all of a sudden, here's a bunch of bright colors and a very smiley woman that we get all over episode eight or issue eight. 
Well, and when this was being collected into the volume that we read this in, and that I think people tend to think of as being the story arc, you know, there was a real question of whether this issue was actually going to be included in it or not. Because although this is volume one of the Sandman, it was actually the second collection. Uh, this this was a new idea uh, in the the early 1990s that we would collect individual comics, right, in things that we, we call graphic novels or, or, you know, if they're in paperback, the trade paperback format, and and put them together as as a single story. And issue eight had been the first issue in the, the first edition of the second volume of, of Sandman. And so whether or not it was going to be included in the first was a, a real question. And I think it tells us a lot that Gaiman insisted that this arc has to end with issue eight. It does a lot, I think, to to cleanse the palette, not only to reset for going forward, because certainly, and depending on, you know, I think depending on which version you have, at least the version I have of the volume that follows actually repeats and has issue eight again. So it's one thing if you have that as like, okay, well, let me cleanse the palette just before the next kind of course or story arc versus, okay, you've just had something, now let's have, like, your mint ice cream to kind of make your, you know, mouth feel cleaner and fresher after the meal you've just consumed, particularly with how much, you know, red meat is actually in it. But I think it's kind of important also to give us that moment of Dream sitting and quietly reflecting on kind of where he's been. And we don't get a lot of monologue about him, uh, nor do we necessarily get the idea that he spends a lot of time um, despite being still angry at people after 10,000 years, we don't get the idea that he spends a lot of time really replaying scenarios in his head. But we do get the idea that he has a lot of angsty, almost, you know, teenager ruminations going on a lot of the time. But to get that and then to play that off against to death. And then also there's some interesting um, things that are said in the face of the first story arc, but also to influence things that come about how dream interprets his role and duty. And so it's him, you know, I think by the end and perhaps the reason why he can show mercy to John D going back to the mercy briefly is because he is better equipped to understand that because of his absence, this is the reason why so many kind of terrible things ended up being manifest and so maybe he, even though he wouldn't say he was responsible, maybe he somewhat understands he is more responsible for John D. at least having the power to do the terrible things that he does by the end of issue seven than he maybe had the capacity to understand at the end of issue one. Well, I think an interesting question has been, been raised here, which is whether or not The Sound of Her Wings is a better epilogue to the first story arc or a better prologue to the second. And I think that will be a question we'll we'll talk about when we do our wrap up of A Doll's House in, I guess, about 10 more episodes or so. Uh, I think let, let's transition now into talking about this volume, uh, Preludes and Nocturnes, as an actual physical volume that we have. Let's talk about the title first, Preludes and Nocturnes. It's a great name. These are both short musical pieces. Nocturne, obviously, has something to do with night, right? Nocturnal. It's a, a short musical piece that's meant to be played at night. And I think people know these terms, preludes and nocturnes, the most from Frederick Chopin, who's the, the Polish romantic composer, really active in the 1830s, 1840s, who wrote these mostly for piano. He's really a, a pianist and a piano composer. And his preludes and nocturnes are normally recorded together. So I think the phrase, when we put them together, really refers to Chopin. Certainly, I had a CD collection of this when we were teenagers. I mean, I still have it. It's just 
digitized now. And one of the things I really love uh, about this volume of Preludes and Nocturnes as well is that we actually get musical notation both on the the dust jacket uh kind of in the background behind the the names of the creators and then if you remove the the dust jacket it is actually that there there are musical notations that are actually etched onto or embossed on the the cloth cover as well and i really like it yeah it's great and the uh, dust jacket art in particular is it's beautiful it is a almost fully grown fetus perhaps and it kind of looks like it's got it's got a kind of a rainbow of colors that could vaguely be in the shape with the fetus of almost a heart but also perhaps like dream's helm kind of that alien type head and it's just it's it's got a lot of wonderful splash of color but then yeah with the music um kind of being this almost like a off gold kind of inlay and it certainly appears that way um in the as you said in the binding itself it's it's great but the preludes and nocturnes very much you know says to me it, it you know this is very much kind of essential stuff to understand the childhood of where things go versus like something else i mean you know to think about preludes the way we think about preludes oftentimes in literature being like, okay, the central bits to get to before you get to the main story, so to speak. Well, very much feels that way. I think especially if you're revisiting this series after having read all of it, or even just some of the, the later bits, this feels a little bit different than than we're going to get in the future. And so this does very much feel like it's a prelude to the bigger story that Neil Gaiman wants to tell, that this is kind of an introduction. One of the things that he's doing in this volume is doing the, the work that the publisher wants him to do which is to create a character who can exist in the DC Comics universe. And so we get DC heroes and villains here. We're not really going to see too much of that again, right? As Gaiman is is building his own speculative world. And so, yeah, it very much feels like a prelude. And I, yeah, I love, I think it's a very clever, very clever volume cover or volume title, I should say. Yeah, and I, I think you're right about the the cover being very excellent as well. I mean, you know, it is it is a, an image of a human fetus, which can be a little off putting, maybe unsettling, but it does tell us that this is the beginning of our story, and so it does work, I think, perfectly with the with the title. There are some other cool features of the actual physical volume here, though, as well, and and one of them is that we get an epigram. Uh, that you wouldn't get just reading the single issues, that it's uh, a bit of the Bible, it's from the book of Job, that Gaiman wanted to come before this. I guess actually there are sort of two epigrams, but but this one is taken from the book of Job, It's and it reads, But where shall wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? Man knoweth not the price thereof, neither is it found in the land of the living, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. And then we get a, a second epigram, which is D is for lots of things. And this is quoting John D who says this, you know, in this book. And so the question, I, I think there's a real obvious connection here, right? About rubies between John D and then, and then rubies being the, uh, uh or the price of wisdom being above rubies. Uh, we're thinking of dreams, Ruby here, but is there more to the use of Job here? Is there something else Gaiman wants us to be thinking about, or is this just clever, uh, a, a clever bit of wordplay he's doing? There's a lot that the book of Job does in terms of uh, the suffering that Job endures uh, while sticking to uh, his central beliefs um, as he is increasingly kind of tested. And in this case, maybe this is about dream sticking to 
remaining kind of a corporeal entity and charging after going into hell to reclaim his uh, helm and to uh, the kind of house um, to get his pouch and facing down John D to get his ruby and kind of what is he to learn from all of that? But it also might be a meta commentary on the, the audience of like, what are we to take from this? Uh, Cause a lot of the, the Sandman story is not just when we, are how lucky enough to get his spoken dialogue or inner monologue, but also all of the characters that he interacts with, both inhabiting the dreamlands as well as elsewhere, and the lives that they richly have woven before us, even if it's just one panel without any words. There's a, there's a lot of work being done, both in the writing and the art here. Well, I think you raise a really great point here, which is what happens when we think about dream in this volume or really the whole series as being like Job, right? Where Job is being tested by the forces of good and evil, by by God and and Satan, or maybe we could call him Lucifer, since Lucifer appears, you know, as a character here in in the Sandman. And and it's a he's being tested, right? It, 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 all of these tragedies are are happening to him, uh, losing his family, losing his livelihood, and 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 on and on and on. And how does he behave in the face of those tragedies? Does he t- continue to be righteous, or does he turn his back on God and say, you know? Uh, to heck with God. If, if God's not going to take care of me and protect me from evil, then I'm not going to bother uh, worshiping him anymore. But Job doesn't, right? That's the contest. But we see something similar here in that maybe in two ways. One is that Dream is is a type of God here, as we've talked about already, who perhaps is doing things like this to mortals. Nada is the person that we see here. But also... Dream himself suffers this terrible tragedy of being imprisoned for 70 years and seeing his tools taken from him and used for destructive purposes. His home is destroyed and so on. There's many of the same things actually that happened to Job, but he maybe turns to the dark side a little bit that his, his more than a little bit, right? His, his immediate impulse is actually vengeance and not mercy. And it's only at the end that he turns to, to mercy he has to remember that or be taught that, which is different from what happens with Job. I think that's a really interesting parallel. Um, and then as for the D is for lots of things, a quote from, from John D. Um, Glenn, other than that, just being a moment to lighten, to, to add a little levity after any time that one quotes the book of Job, you really need to add a little levity shortly thereafter. Is that what's going on here? Or is there something else other than just uh, making a joke? Well, again, you know, if they think of the purpose of an epigram is to clue us into what the story is going to be about, what the themes are, what we should be looking for, then this is a great line because it tells us to pay attention to all the things that D actually is used for in this story. This line, as it appears in the story, of course, is a great joke because it is contrasted with the idea that the the names of all of the endless of Dream's family begin with D, right? Certainly dream, death, uh, destiny. Those are the, the, the characters we've seen on the page so far, but we've heard about others as well. And so it's alerting us to pay attention to those characters as well. And maybe anything that starts with D. But I also like here that it does, you know, if, if, if we're supposed to be thinking about Job as we're reading the story, then it does also tell us to pay attention to John D, who similarly is someone who has suffered, right? And made 
poor choices. And it is interesting to contrast Dream and John D as both being people who have uh, suffered in imprisonment and who have an attachment with this Ruby, have uh, a close relationship with a woman in their family. For Dream, it's his sister, Death. Uh, for D, it's his mother, and, and so on. I think there's some interesting parallels there. I mean, that's what struck me somewhat um, is with the complexity of the character of John D, as you mentioned, that D is for lots of things is is it is an indication of pay attention to what D is used through throughout uh, used for throughout. It also is kind of funny, particularly when you see how much D is used for names of characters, particularly the endless. Um, and that will only grow as we go. But also because it's a quote from John D and John D is on the face of things, kind of a terrible person, whether that's entirely something that was within his control versus the damage that maybe was done to him by, you know, growing up and being corrupted maybe by the Ruby or other things, external factors aside. I mean, he does many horrible things. So, and, and maybe that's actually an interesting point. If you think about him in relation to some of the terrible things that Dream has done maybe in the past in terms of what he did to Nada 10,000 years ago, although still subjecting her to if he has the power to free her. But, I mean, by the end of the volume, and we talked about this a little bit when we talked about the end of issue seven, but um, after all of the horrible things that John D subjects people to – um, subjects people to Glenn. I mean, how do you feel about the character of John D? Does it does it breed terror in you? Does it breed uh, a feeling of uh, sympathy? Um, is it a mixture of those things? Well, I am terrified of him. I certainly don't want to encounter John D out in the real world. I haven't been in a diner uh, in months now, and I think it's probably going to stay that way. But I do. In the end of the day, I, I pity him. Uh, I, I see him. Although as, as certainly as a perpetrator of crimes, but he is also a, a victim. He's a, a victim of this Ruby and he is perhaps also a victim of Arkham Asylum. I, I don't know that there are any readers of DC comics who really are, are on board with the idea that Arkham Asylum is a good institution, right? I think we all know it's a <laughs> terrible institution that actually makes people worse. It's not really designed to, to help people. Or if it is, it's just failing at that and someone should go, you know, check it out and and fix it. So in the end, I really end up pitying D. And that's what Dream does too, right? Which is why he has mercy on him. But what was your feeling? How did you feel about him? Uh, I felt similar, except for sometimes I get a hankering for pancakes. And so I do go to diners still. But yeah, I think by the end, you know, I'm, 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 I'm frightened for him. I am angry at many of the things that he has done. I do find myself feeling sympathy towards him. I don't know that that doesn't mean that I think that he shouldn't be locked away in some capacity, but to just be locked away behind bars um, in Arkham Asylum without particularly getting any kind of treatment for his benefit. Also, given the uh, ease with which people seem to leave Arkham Asylum, I'm not sure it protects anyone else for him to be there. In many ways, he's just kind of a, a sad, sad figure. And I think that the art does a really good job of also depicting him as that, where he's just kind of this sad remnants of, of, of what looks like what once was a man, which in some ways always reminds me of um, the view of how you feel about Gollum as you read through uh, The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings is, is how do you feel about this really kind of disgusting, vile creature 
who in many ways you're very sympathetic towards at, at particular parts of the story. So I, I don't know what your thoughts are about the Gollum versus John D, particularly in the art, but also in the narrative. Well, I think probably I said this in the episode when we first talked about this, but I have forgotten. So I'll say it again, which is that my favorite line in the Lord of the Rings, which is my favorite book. It's a book I love so much that I have tattoos of it on my body. That is the reason why I brought it up again. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. I appreciate it. But when, when, when Gandalf is explaining to Frodo that the pity is the reason that no one has just executed Gollum, that, that it's not up to us to make that choice. We, we, we aren't the ones who can bestow life on people. So we shouldn't bestow death on people either. And that pity is the, the, one of the most important, uh, attributes that we can have. One of the most important things that we can do as people. I think it's very clear that Neil Gaiman's John D, Neil Gaiman's Dr. Destiny is Gollum and clearly inspired by Gollum. I mean, he's even got the accoutrements and so on. And I, I, that's not something I think that I had noticed in Reed's before. And so I'm glad that we have done this podcast, if for nothing else, than uncovering that. It's part of your new expanded universe in which you realize that Lord of the Rings and uh, the Sandman are actually in the same multiverse. <laughs> I desperately want that to be true. I would, and I certainly would read that crossover fan fiction. Well, let's talk about another element of of the actual volume here, which is that we get an introduction and an afterward. the The introductions by by Karen Berger, who's the the editor of of Vertigo, and then the afterward is by Neil Gaiman himself. Uh, and I was really interested in, in Gaiman's afterward, where it's 1993, and he's reflecting back a few years on the, the genesis of Sandman as, uh, as, as a story and in, in his own mind, how he came up with the ideas, but then also uh, from the business perspective of, of DC. And the thing that I think, though, that jumped out to me the most is that Gaiman says that he finds many of these first issues awkward and ungainly. Those are the words that he used. And then he goes on to say that the the sound of her wings was the first story in the sequence I felt was truly mine and in which I knew I was beginning to find my own voice. Do you how how do you feel about that, Brent? Do you agree with Gaiman that that the other issues are awkward and ungainly? I think they can be a little bit, but um I also found it interesting he remarked that there was kind of a different style he was going for, particularly in the first few issues, in which whether it be something along the lines of kind of reflexive of old DC and EC horror comics, certainly including, you know, coast, uh, hosts of the uh, DC horror comics um, with Cain and Abel and the Three Witches. But I think in some ways it ends up, well, while we do have a central story, arguably at least through one through seven, if not one through eight, it does make it feel in times like a little bit of an anthology. So I almost forgive it a little bit when it becomes a little bit more unwieldy because bits here or there are flourishes. I just take to be kind of the fun little bells that an author may hang on a short story where I'm like, well, you probably could pair that little bit back. It doesn't really go anywhere, but it adds a little bit of fun universe building for this. So it, it sets up room for if you wanted to expand on that concept in a, in a later story in the same kind of Raymond Carver universe or otherwise. But I mean, what are your thoughts? Do you think that he's not really finding his voice and he's just trying to ape other styles too much to a point or he's just getting comfortable with the characters or, you know, from a writer's perspective, what are your thoughts? 
Well, I think I get his sentiment there, which is that, especially I think in comics, this happens in TV too, where you've got a deadline and you've got to get stories out no matter what's going on. And there, there's no chance for writer's block. And it's hard. You can't have do-overs. Once an issue's out, uh, if you know three acts in your story down the line, you have an idea, but you'd have to go back and change something in the first part. You don't get to, right? And this, we complain about continuity in Star Trek and so on because of that. And Gaiman writes about that a little bit here in the afterward. And so, you know, I think it is clear that he is trying things out in some of these these early issues. And so there are some ideas, some concepts that he floats here that I don't think are going to last, that he's going to sort of downplay them or, or just completely forget about them as we go. But in terms of the writing itself, right, the prose, the storytelling, my enjoyment of these issues, I enjoyed almost all of them a, a lot, right? That these are some of the best comics, some of the best literature that I've, I've ever read. And that's here in the first volume when he is still figuring out what he's doing. So I'm, it, that comment just has me very excited for the things to come. But I think on that note, we should just move into our assessment phase here that we've got on the outline, where we're just going to talk about some of our favorites here. And the, the first up is favorite issue. And, and Brent, I'll kick this question to you first. Uh, what is your favorite issue? And I'm going to be curious as to whether or not it is The Sound of Her Wings. <laughs> I think as a whole, it is A Sound of Her Wings. I really didn't want it to be, because again, it almost feels like it's not part of the story. But I I think, I think it works really well as a, in many ways, very necessary epilogue to issues one through seven and everything up to that point. Uh, it also has the introduction of death, which is understandably a favorite character of, of many, um, and perhaps my own. I'm, I'm not sure. I'd have to think about that, but the art is, uh, very spare in places in that. Um, issue as well, but where it's done, it's done beautifully. You had remarked, um, about the care taken with getting the park, um, in New York City just right in, um, and that, you know, kind of landscape view of the making sure that the brickwork on the buildings, the stonework matches what actually is really there and kind of the care taken, but also kind of the light airiness of the issue, particularly after some of the heavier things uh, that come. But it does also have some, darker moments where you're dealing with people at the end of their lives and you're also somewhat getting glimpses of the effect that the end of people's lives have on those around them. Uh, it's one thing when we have the old man who is alone when he dies um, and our thoughts about him and um, any sympathies we might have for him, but also um, any joy we might express at him uh, feeling his ability to take agency. But then we have the anguish of the mother who returns to give a bottle to her baby to find that her baby is dead. Like that is affecting in a way that given how little space is given to it is just, I, th I think it's amazing. I think it's, it's wonderful work done there by the writing and even what is not written um, as well as, you know, by the art and kind of the space given to it, but yet still kind of being an uplifting story by the end with almost a Mary Poppins twirl um, that <laughs> dream engages in, which uh, it could be silly um, if it was done by a less capable writer uh, or um, art team, I think. But uh, is that your favorite issue or? 
It is not, and it, it actually wasn't one that even got in the running for me, though I think it is a fantastic issue. And I will say, I suspected it was probably going to, to be yours. And it's it's important. It's clearly important. Gaiman thinks it's important. I think it's the single issue we've been talking about the most in our in this wrap-up episode as we've been going. So clearly, it's very, very important. But for me, uh, this came down to uh, the, a toss-up between the first issue, The Sleep of the Just, or the fourth issue, A Hope in Hell. But but ultimately, I think that I think A Hope in Hell is my favorite issue in this first story arc anyway, because it has all the things that I love about game and the things that I go to, to game and for it's got layers upon layers of literary illusions. It's got clever dialogue full of wordplay, but it also really, really expands the speculative world that Gaiman is building, right? This is where we learn that hell is a real place. We also learned that dream was present for Lucifer's fall. Uh, and you know, yeah, it's, as I said, literary illusions. So it, it, in, in that moment, actually quoting, Christ in the uh, Gospels. Uh, we've got uh, tons of Dante Alighieri in in uh, the Divine Comedy in in this issue as well. And I do also like the art. I mean, I love that sort of that two page splash of hell and all the demons and how some of them are Doctor Seuss characters and so on. Again, so even artistic allusions, not just literary ones. So it really ticks all the boxes for me. All the things I go to Gaiman for. Yeah, and it is a great uh, comic. It, there's a lot of freedom that. Having an entire mythological plane like hell as opposed to putting the world allows for kind of freeing up both the narrative storytelling as well as the fun I think that the artists can have when thinking about how to depict things and the, uh, and also for the inker and the colorists even like what color choices to go with. Um, and this changes a lot a little bit. Some of the color choices between the original, uh, versions is reprinted in the, in these volumes. And for those who, um, have the kind of more prestige coming later versions later, there's some different color choices taken. And I have slight preferences here or there, but I also kind of really like both the original and the real done for slightly different reasons, which is, I think a fun way of you can color things multiple ways and it conveys slightly different things um and that's i think that's great um so having talked about favorite issues overall who is your favorite character whether they're the protagonist of a particular issue or whether they're a minor figure who only like appears for a brief moment who in all of these first eight issues is your favorite character who is not dream yeah this was a real tough one for me and I think while we've been talking, we've made a pretty good case for John D. And I did consider that, but I'm going to go with the three women, the the Fates, the Furies, the Hecatei. Uh, I think I went on for quite a long time about what I love about them in the, the issue where we encounter them. But this, again, is one of these places where Gaiman is drawing on, on literary and, and just deep cultural allusions, but is also expanding his world. I also... I, I just find uh, the way that they're they're drawn and uh, with uh, sort of shifting uh, appearances uh, depending on sort of what what aspect they are and the way that they kind of move around on the on the page the order in which they're arranged I think is a really nice uh, visual uh, story bit of storytelling that's fantastic and I I love when they appear on the cover and and uh, one of them is actually an owl uh, so yeah these these were probably my my favorite non dream characters but who did you pick 
It was really hard because uh, as a fan of a lot of DC comics around this era, particularly the Justice League International stuff going on, I really like Mr. Miracle. Um, I really like uh, – I've always been a big fan of John Jones, the Martian Manhunter. So it's always tempted, particularly when he mentions Oreos, to be like, yep, he's my guy. <laughs> um, as we've talked about elsewhere, John Constantine, when we talked about the issue, John Constantine um, is, a, is, is a favorite and I do like – Neil's um, kind of take on his character, and he does a great job very much as the protagonist of that uh, story where we don't get Dream's internal thoughts at all in that particular issue. But I think the character who I like the most and is always welcome when they pop up, which is only eh, three or four times maybe told in the collection, it's um, Dr. Uh, Dr. Crane. It's the Scarecrow. Whenever we cut to Arkham and we see him and he's, whether he's doing terrible things or silly things, it's a fun bit of usually fairly macabre humor. Um, and I, I, I like that take on that character where he is not just a cackling madman who is just like fear gas. Now I'm going to punch you like he's in a video game, nor is he, you know, so smart, nor is he even particularly eager to escape as he, you know, says when John D returns, he was worried about John D that he wanted to make sure he came back home. Um, and I think there's so much that's kind of communicated about kind of how terrible Arkham is, but also how in some ways it's a protective in some ways for the inmates, maybe not for the guards. Um, so I think this depiction of the Scarecrow, um, which is not at all, you know, Sandman character, it's a Batman villain, but um, I really, really like uh, Neil Gaiman's take on that character. And I also like the way that Sam Keith and Mike Dringberg decided to actually depict him as well, where he's not seven foot tall he's clearly not he's clearly tall but he's not you know so overtly over the top he looks very much like just kind of a guy you'd meet who just happens to just be a little off scarecrow is a really interesting choice here i mean that was not what i expected you were going to say but he is a really interesting character in this story arc in that he is someone who is imprisoned in arkham asylum but he likes it there. He doesn't see it as a prison. In fact, he's not quite sure why John D is trying to get out. And he knows that John D is just going to come back, right? So this prison is actually a home for him. And I think that's a really great, uh, great way to, to read that character that, that Gaiman does for us here. It's, that's a good choice. So one thing I've struggled with a lot, and so I'm going to vamp for more time and ask you first, Glenn, <laughs> we've talked about favorite panels as we've gone, but at, now that we've read, reread for the umpteenth time all eight of these issues, you know, what panel kind of sticks with you for, for good or ill? Yeah, favorite panel is a really fun question because, you know, what do we even mean by, by favorite? I guess we could ask that for, for all of these. But, uh, you know, is it something that, that scares me, something that unsettles me, something I want to look at? And, and that's kind of where I went with it. So what I've picked is the title page of Sleep of the Just. It's the first title page of the series. It's also our first look at Dream with all his accoutrements. It's also just got this cool occult stuff going on. And the title is done up in an Art Nouveau style that I love. And ultimately, really, what I was thinking about as I was reading again and and, and had this in mind that I was going to have to pick one of these, what I was looking for was, what do I want to hang up? on the wall in my home. And it is, it is the sleep of the just title page. Okay. I did. I hope, did I buy you enough time to, to make this very hard choice? The good thing is there's nothing at stake, <laughs> which is very good. Well, and you, 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 I, I had an answer. Then you just threw me because 
if I were to put something on the wall, then I think Sleep of the Just or the two-page splash of uh, Hope and Hell that was your favorite panel when we discussed that issue or any number of the shots where Dream and uh, Death are sitting at the fountain feeding the pigeons. Those were the things that I would want to have on the wall. In fact, Dream and Death sitting at the fountain was my wallpaper for quite a while um, throughout undergrad on my computer. But I think when I think about this ish, this, this collection of issues in its entirety, the thing that sticks with me, but I don't actually want to ever put on the wall is the panel of John D right after he eats the fly on the second to last, second to last page of uh, 24 hours um, where he is just holding that Ruby in that trench coat and just looks he looks, he looks mad. He looks, uh, bored. He looks <laughs> terrifying. And that to me says a lot about kind of how I feel about everything that's depicted in these volumes where there's, there's really terrifying things that are happening, but in such kind of a just kind of standing there kind of way. You know, we don't have someone, this isn't a superhero comic where someone is flying into a building and it's a fun explosion. It isn't a, uh, nor is it a, you know, two characters like, you know, staring off into the sunset. Um, there's that wonderful image that we talked about at the, uh, um, with, uh, John Constantine's ex and, and the last dream that she has, um, uh, before she expires where she has the happy memory of them walking off in the sunset together. And that's a great image. But, uh, um, I think the panel I'm gonna have to give it to is John D eating the fly. But, uh, again, that if, if we weren't talking favorite panel and we were talking favorite panel to hang on a wall, that would be near the bottom for me. Yeah, I don't think I would want this on my wall either. But I will say, I think it would go nice on a coffee mug. So maybe that's something we can uh, <laughs> we can do for you. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep you in the hot seat here, Brent. What was your favorite cover? Um, well, I've thought a lot about the covers, um, and one of the things I uh, also got out of the Sandman Companion by Highbender was the discussion, and also out of the uh, Dave McKeon Dusk covers book, was the discussion that in many ways the first few issues, the covers were meant to be kind of a portrait gallery of the characters. And I like a lot of them. Um, I think I'm going to cheat and do a runner-up first. My runner-up is the one with Scott Free, where there's all of the circuitry on passengers, with the circuitry and the padlocks and the chains. And what's amazing to me is the chains and the padlocks give you an idea of the actual scale of the size of that particular work where like those are those are actual chains that's not a painting that's a photograph with the mixed media of actual padlocks so it gives you an idea of how big the installation is for that cover um but i think the one that i have to go with is the one for sound and fury there are a couple of things i like about this one in particular there was a little disagreement when i saw two different interviews with neil gaiman about who this was a cover to picture of but i think the confusion is i think it's actually multiple characters one thing i like is that i believe primarily the this is the john d cover um so i guess i'm keeping with a john d theme here but we have the central image being actually the a cover of the first issue having been printed on like a meslin fabric according to dave mckeon's dust covers book which allows it to be kind of transparent and seen through um which reminds me of this wonderful uh, piece of photographic art that i have that my uh, cousin uh, lisa johnston of denver did where it's uh, two photos and one is on like a meslin fabric that is over the other black and white photo so it's kind of a ghost image 
But um, so there's the ghost image of Dream, but over him is this body of a very kind of artistically off figure of it's not quite sure if it's male or female and there's kind of a crooked smile and i think that is supposed to be john d when he is in the dreamland and he's kind of envisioning that he is caesar having come back having you know conquered um he has seen he has conquered but then we have the hands of dream subtly manipulating things around the edges of it to eventually you know get where he needs to be to kind of get out or maybe he's struggling and he's trying to get out but so i like the combination here and the imagery um i like the visual kind of 3d feel of having that actual doorknob and little like wooden keyhole um so it's a lot i like about that particular cover and i I think that as i was thinking about this volume last evening um and thinking a lot about john d and looking back having better appreciated i don't think i know i first mentioned even noticed the first time or two that it was the image from the first cover that was what i was seeing kind of on the fabric in the middle there. But uh, so I guess it's kind of a cheat because I'm almost getting two covers. But Well, n- yeah, neither neither of us noticed that. But it, it's super cool. It's like the Shroud of Turin, except that it's Dream. Yeah. And I, I will say that what I picked actually was that cover, the Sleep of the Just <laughs> cover. because it, it, Not just because it's the first cover we get with Dream on it, but because I particularly like the way that Dream looks on it. He looks uh, very scary, but he also, uh, I mean, he looks you know like the stuff of, of nightmares, but he also looks just uh, you know alien uh, to us, and I think that that sets a good tone for the whole series. But also, again, the the objects on the side, of course, right, which we like to talk about, are also important for the series. Uh, really, looking ahead, right? We've got two clocks. There's some flowers. There's books, a cat, and lots and lots of things with wings on them. And it just these are images, these are motifs, visual motifs that we're going to have throughout the whole series. So I like the way that it sets the tone for everything to come. Yeah, there's just there's so much going on on with all of those items um and you and i as lovers of bookshelves um it, it is it was harder for me not to pick the one that clearly had the shelves with books on them um but the smiling laughing buddha was great um i love that the hourglass has run out that it is not uh full or even like in action of dripping down but it appears that it is uh the time has passed, uh, which is a quite a statement to have an hourglass that has run out as the cover of your first issue of your comic versus I think I would make the mistake because I think this is the correct way to go. But I think my mistake if I was doing this would be I would probably have flipped that and have it be like, no, no, it's the start. So let's have it be full. And you can just see like a couple grains of sand have fallen. And I think that that would have been an error. The idea that like, no, all the grains of sand are here. And also, as I think about it, the grains of sand and Sandman trapped in the crystal globe kind of very much being represented in the sands in the hourglass. Well, it might be a little bit of an ominous statement here about what is to come in the series. Not that it was necessarily all planned as we go, but I think there might be a way of reading that hourglass uh, when we get to the the whole end of the series and are doing our series wrap up uh, years and years from now, I guess that will be. So uh, I guess if we're going to be looking that far ahead, I think that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to Clay Temple Forums and let us know what you thought of Preludes and Nocturnes. What was your favorite character who wasn't Dream? 
if, if Dream is in the running, is he even your favorite character? Honestly, if we did include him, I think he'd probably be sixth or seventh on my list. You know, what are your thoughts about John D? How much are you terrified of him? Have you been back to a diner since reading um, 24 hours? Let us know about that. Let us know about uh, uh, any great uh, depictions you might have. Uh, or if for those of you who are artists, if you want to give us a view of any of the characters in the volumes as if they were Greek gods or heroes. I would love to see more art of that. And we do certainly see some of that as we go, but uh, um, even more folks dressed in Greek garb, I think would be great. Yeah. We'd love fan art, fan fiction, uh, diner recommendations, all of that. Please come to the forum and send those things our way. And we, we, we'd really pretty excited to have a conversation with you about this first story arc. It is going to be our custom to take a little break from the Sandman whenever we finish one of these story arcs. And so next month, we'll be back with Gaiman's American Gods novella, Black Dog, which you can find in his uh, really great collection, Trigger Warning. And then after that, we'll get back to Sandman with issue number nine, Tales in the Sand. But until then, until next time, pleasant dreams. Pleasant dreams.